Welcome to Ideas Matter. This episode, the third in our series, The Use and Abuse of History, features the lecture entitled Relic or Spectre? What was Fascism? which was recorded at the BOI's The Academy Online event held in April 2021. The lecturer is Professor Aristotle Callas from the School of Humanities at the University of Kiel. To introduce Professor Callas and give some context to his talk, we first hear from the chair, the journalist Ella Whelan. By way of introduction, the issue of understanding fascism, uh, both as, a, as an ideology, as a moment in history, as a specific historical context, has become really difficult today. Uh, there are many things that can be labelled fascist, there are many people who are labelled fascists, and there are many things and, and moments and political events that are uh, in the same way labelled fascistic. But it was interesting looking at the, uh, the reading on your reading list from the um, Weizmann introduction to the Trotsky reading, where you get a sense of how long-standing this problem of the uh, fast and loose use of uh, the term fascist is. And he says that liberals are guilty of using the word fascist very loosely today, and that was back in 1969. I suppose the difference between, you know, the stereotype of Rick from the young ones calling everything and anyone a fascist pig, um, which has been a sort of central tenet of certain left-wing groups for a long time, is that today the overuse of the term fascists or fascism has a different kind of legitimacy. So while it would have perhaps been shrugged off or ignored as a, as a sort of uh, eccentricity of certain left-wing or anti-fascist groups, it is now taken, allegations of fascism are taken very seriously in as much as you can have serious discussions on news programmes or among politicians about the fascistic tendencies of COVID regulations or the fascistic tendencies of votes in American politics and this kind of thing. Um, another difference is, of course, and there is no discussion about the understanding that unlike previous moments in history, than like the 1930s, for example, there aren't the conditions that perhaps created the emergence of fascism. You know, there's no, there are, there's no threat from the left. There's no, uh, you know, squeezed petty bourgeois. There is no quaking ruling class. And so the similarities drawn, as Frank mentioned, between the 1930s and today seem to lack any kind of historical legitimacy or historical literacy. And so in order to understand fascism and its place today, and whether it is emerging, whether it's a threat, whether it's something that should be taken seriously, we have to understand what it was. And indeed, that is why we put in the title, Relic or Spectre, what was fascism, how it has been uh, understood how it should be understood and how it has been reinterpreted throughout the years uh, and that's when our speaker for today comes in and um, I'm sure lots of you will have read this uh, tome of hopefully just even just the uh, Aristotle's introduction from the fascism reader um, which he edited where he really goes through in fantastic detail um, very compelling detail the different iterations of understanding of what fascism was from the interwar periods onwards process of revisionism, the way in which it was politically mobilized by different groups wanting to understand what the nation meant, how histories were created. And so it's a, you know, this is a debate that has been had for decades that we're having today. And yet hopefully um, through Aristotle's lecture and discussion afterwards, we will come to some kind of, maybe ask some questions more than give answers about what, how, what we understand fascism to have been. 
Professor Aristotle Callas is a world expert on the study of fascism and author of numerous books and articles on the subject, including The Third Rome, 1922-43, The Making of the Fascist Capital, Genocide and Fascism, The Eliminationist Drive in Fascist Europe, and Fascist Ideology, Territory and Expansionism in Italy and Germany from 1922 to 1945. And he is currently uh, researching four areas, comparative fascism in interwar Europe, modernist ideas about urban planning and architecture, and contemporary radical right-wing populism and the mainstream, as well as the mobilities of ideas. Um, and this fascism reader book was from 2003 through his lecture. So welcome, Professor, and over to you. Thank you very much, Ella, for the uh, very kind introduction. And I always don't recognize the person uh, in those introductions. Uh, um, but um, uh, thank you all um, for inviting me and for inviting me and for indulging me, for having me uh, to talk for uh, 30 or 31 minutes uh, um, on, um, on uh, um, something that is really topical, but um, not really easy to unpack. Um, a joke that we have amongst ourselves as fascism studies scholars is that whenever we go to a conference to discuss something, we leave that conference even more confused than when we arrived at the conference. Without further ado, I didn't choose the title, but actually I couldn't have chosen a better one. I saw in your reading list um, Trotsky and um, obviously I am borrowing a little bit the title just as a little bit of a joking aside I uh, this is a Microsoft slideshow um, I've tried three or four different pictures of Trotsky but the program does not allow me to use them so clearly Microsoft has got an issue with Trotsky, not with others, but this is the thing. So it was meant to be illustrated with a photo of Trotsky. Um, why am I putting it th uh, here? Because usually this is the question we're asking. And I'm not blaming Trotsky because, of course, he was writing as this phenomenon was unfolding in front, in front of their eyes, while we today have the luxury of hindsight and critical distance from it. But I actually think it's the wrong question. And instead of asking this question, I'm going to be asking a series of other questions that hopefully I'm going to tell you what I think. And you should be very happy to hear that every single thing of what I'm saying has got its contestation. OK, somebody can say I disagree. And that's brilliant. That's what historians love doing. Otherwise, we'll be out of work. Um, so let's start with this kind of really Straightforward question, how old is fascism? Uh, well, uh, is it about 100 years old? Well, it could be a little bit more than 100 years old, actually, because in 1919, Mussolini um, put together, organized a little gathering. He was, at that point, he was a, 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 a bit of a radical startup owner, but quite frankly, a loser. A few people um, gathered in this square in Milan and he launched what became the, um, the fascist party, but he wasn't even calling it a fascist party. There were about 300 people. That was all, uh, not very much. So, you know, 100 and 102 years old or something, um, fine. Um, could it be that it's not, it's just under a hundred years. So this is the March on Rome. This is where the fascists decided to heed the call from Mussolini and march literally, as you can see on the left from all over Italy towards Rome in order to force the political establishment to succumb. And of course, as a result of this, against the odds, I would say, uh, Mussolini was appointed prime minister. So 1922 is a very credible starting point for fascism or 
There is a tiny detail, of course, because in 1922, Mussolini was head of a coalition government that included liberals and others, okay? So could it be that the real um, birth of fascism is when Mussolini stood in front of the parliament and declared a dictatorship? So essentially suspended parts of the constitution and the other political parties. So it's well under a hundred years old. Not many people say that, but I remember one of my students who said that um, I think fascism as an international force was born in 1933 when it became two, not one. Because one, you can discount as a bit of an oddity, as an outlier. But when you have two, Hitler being appointed again, head of coalition government, these are not fascist revolutions, okay? Um, then you have this one. But it gets more complicated. And that's why I'm asking this question, because if you for a moment don't think of fascism as a particular political movement with a leader and a regime, but ask the question when the fascist ideology was born, when, well, there's a very interesting discussion about the origins of fascist ideology going back to the 19th century, when you have a number of people, and I'm not going to bore you with what each and every one uh, of them said, but setting the scenes, the, the scene and the foundation for, for that kind of fascist fusion of the national and the social. I'm not going to call it socialist yet because um, that, that term needs qualification. But it was this kind of fusion that set in motion a number of other political figures to expand on it. And then Mussolini to make that, in 1914, to make that rather incomprehensible, maybe, transition from being a radical revolutionary socialist to being um, um, a, an an arch nationalist, as it were. So could it be that fascism was actually born in the late 19th century, around the 1880s? And actually, not even in Italy, but as some historians of fascism say, actually in France, when you had quite a lot of, um, you can see Charles uh, Morat on the left, um, you have Sorel, of course, in France, you have um, Le Bon, who wrote about crowd and so on. So you have quite a lot of uh, potential candidates. Um, the gentleman on the right is Enrico Corradini. He was a radical nationalist pre-Mussolini, but eventually he was absorbed into the fascist party. So, you know, there were people, there were fascists before fascism, as it were, in some respects. I'm not going to mention Nietzsche here, Nietzsche, because uh, I think that's probably stretching it a little bit too much. But uh, um, you get the picture of this kind of alternative reading of fascism. Or could it be that fascism is something eternal? Something is, fascism is something universal. Fascism is something that has to do with um, the psychology of the individual and the psychology of the crowd. Fascism just cannot be pinned down into a particular historical period or a country. So you can see we don't agree. Historians don't agree. Uh, um, nobody really agrees in that respect because it depends on what kind of fascism you have in mind. Are you talking about the ideas? Are you talking about the political expression? Are you talking about the political regime? Um, with regard to this, I'm referring to Wilhelm Reich, his book about the mass psychology of fascism. The point that he makes there is that fascism is something that, that is not culturally specific, it's not historically specific, it inheres in the uh, personality, it inheres in certain um, uh, aspects of every human being, potentially. Um, then we have another kind of question. 
Okay, let's agree that fascism is a is an ideology, and we we're going to get to this in a moment. Uh, um, and let's agree that it was born roughly politically after the First World War, just after the First World War. Okay, so how do we deal with this fascism? Do we deal with it as an Italian phenomenon only, or as something that maybe starts in Italy and then travels, spreads? gets imitated, whatever you want to call it. Essentially, I don't think that many people would disagree with the fact that the Italians and i.e. Mussolini and his party own the trademark, okay? Um, the term comes from them. Um, but that doesn't mean that it stays there, okay? This is, this is the important thing. And I make this point here. I mean, of course, fascism took political shape rather than ideological shape, but took political shape in Italy. And the important thing is that it became successful in Italy. Um, the, the problem we're discussing and why we have been discussing fascism for a hundred years is not because there is an ideology out there that is a bit weird, that is a bit extreme, that is very extreme, that is potentially quite catastrophic. Of course, this is a problem, but a lot of ideologies stay in the margins of history. We don't really write, you know, you, we usually squeeze them into footnotes of books and so on and so forth. Most people don't know about them. The reason why we're discussing fascism is because that kind of extreme ideology became appealing to a lot of people. That is the problem uh, we are discussing here. So, fascism in Italy not only took political shape, but it was the first instance of with the March on Rome in 1922, when fascism became successful. Up until that point, I mean, I'm talking about early 1920s, most people refer to fascism as something that is rooted in Italy. It's a kind of Italian oddity. And, and it's really the Communist International in the first uh, meeting, the first time, um, they articulated this idea that fascism is a generic form. It starts in Italy, but it has the potential of becoming a general political arrangement. Now, that definition is very interesting. The connection between fascism and monopoly capitalism, obviously, whether it is accurate or not, we can discuss it. But to me, the most important contribution of the Communist International's definition of fascism is drawing attention to the potential of fascism to be actually an international and generic force. Today, we talk about generic fascism and we talk about varieties of fascism. So not necessarily the same thing from country to country. And I am, you know, well, well today when we talk about everything, we somehow squeeze in um, epidemiological metaphors. Um, but there are quite a lot of variants of fascism going around, uh, um, mutations, whatever you decided. Now, I don't want to push that language very far, but you get, you get the picture of what I mean by varieties. Okay, so let's, let's say that there is something out there, there is fascism. How do we find out what it is? Okay, right, you know, um, communism, socialism has got its programmatic text. We have Marx, then, we, then depending on, on, on which kind of branch of, of, of socialism you follow, you can read Lenin, you can read Mao, you can read Trotsky, you can read whoever you like. Um, who speaks for fascism? So how, where do we find that fascism so we can study it and then come to an agreement as to what it is? I mean, is it programmatic texts? Well, we have a bit of a problem here because 
first of all, the fascist parties were really quite broad coalitions and they included quite a lot of different people. So they're not really renowned for their ideological coherence, okay? Second, okay, let's, let's talk about the person who had the trademark, okay, Mussolini. Well, Mussolini um, blessed us with some kind of definition of fascism in 1932, so 10 years after he came to power. Well, not very useful, interesting, but not very useful. The problem is that basically, then, of course, we have Mein Kampf, and I was just trying to find a way to describe Mein Kampf. Okay, is it a programmatic text? To me, it isn't, and I put it down there. To me, it's a little bit more like a collection of blog pieces. It just it makes little sense as a piece altogether. It doesn't have any core concept. It's a kind of bits of pieces and rants and the kind of things that sometimes we write on social media or on our blogs. So uh, we have we have this... Um, what, what is the problem? You see, we have, we have a problem, and I'm going to come to this in a moment. We have multiple problems. So, okay, let's say the programmatic text, scratch. Uh, well, we have the leaders, the speak, the write quite a lot. They're quite garrulous, fine. I mean, but, you know, so let, let's study what they said and what they did. But we have a problem here because how do we deal with a gap between what they say and what they mean or the kind of propaganda use of language and so on and so forth? So you, you always have this big gap, not to mention the fact that fascist ideas changed a lot in the 1920s and 30s. To use the example of Mussolini, uh, Mussolini's initial fascism is very strongly anti-clerical, and that's the same Mussolini who in 1929, through an agreement with the Catholic Church, solves one of the basic constitutional problems that had plagued modern Italy, the fact that the Pope did not recognize the Italian state, over the ownership of Rome, as it were. So even that is not very good. And then we have, fine, let's study what they did, okay? Well, no fascist made history in their own terms. We know that dictum very, very well. Um, They never really um, took power through a fascist revolution. Uh, So even that is not necessarily the best uh, um, and the most accurate depiction of what's happening. And of course, even if we say, okay, let's study them in power, that's not um, right either. Because let's not forget, Mussolini was um, exercising power together with um, the king. So he was technically under the authority of the king. Hitler spent some time being, as you can see in the photo, quite referential to the president of the Weimar Republic, um, Hindenburg. He died conveniently for Hitler very, very soon afterwards. But that's the idea um, in that respect. So uh, their actions once in power showed quite a lot of compromise. Uh, So we have quite, quite a few problems. So what a lot of scholars have actually decided is that rather than, okay, we're dealing with quite a lot of fascisms, fascism as ideas, fascisms in opposition, fascisms in power, different varieties and everything. Let us try and study fascism's ideology and extract from all those fluid ideas some kind of core, as it were, okay? Well, Here's where I'm getting a little bit more controversial. And as I said, I am planning on being controversial. Um, I spent quite a lot of time uh, um, working on fascism. And initially, I took it quite seriously. uh, And I still take it seriously. But I actually think that fascism is a thin-centered ideology, i.e. what I mean is 
fascism attaches itself to other ideas. It doesn't have from the beginning a stable ideological core, a central creed that holds everything together that is of its own. So essentially it attaches to other doctrines and then what it does is something we're going to talk about in a moment. But where I think it's a very important distinction to make is this sort of idea that fascism is a third um, way ideology. Um, and the third way ideologies, I mean, to put it in a way that I, I become more and more fond of describing it, fascism is taboo breaker, kind of breaks down barriers that used to be between left and right, between uh, um, individualistic and communal, between nationalist and internationalist. He kind of mixes things up, um, individual collective and so on and so forth. The third concept that I'm throwing here is I consider fascism quite a banal ideology. Now, there is a reason why there is that picture here, and that's Hannah Arendt, who got herself into a lot of trouble in the 1960s for calling um, Nazism and the violence against the Jews as banal, the so-called banality of evil. And she got into a lot of trouble. I hope I will not get into that um, lot of trouble today. But what I mean by that is that fascism is based on a synthesis of ideas that were already out there and were very much part of what a lot of people either believed already or were quite happy to accept in the process. And in that respect, I, I feel it, I, I'm talking about it, something quite banal. So let us see what a couple of historians have said. Zev Sternell, one of the really important um, historians of fascist ideology. He said, in order to understand fascism, you actually try have to understand the fact that its originality doesn't come from its core, but from the originality of the synthesis between nationalism and socialism. And Sternell is one of those historians who thinks that fascism emerged in the 19th century as an ideology, in the late 19th century. George Moss, who is the gentleman you can't see, but there he is, um, so uh, I don't know why he got uh, hidden here. He actually called fascism a scavenger. But he said that you cannot understand fascism without nationalism. And then there is this third historian, Ro Roger Griffin, whom I'm very uh, um, happy to call my mentor in so many ways. He says, let's take together three basic ideas. You have hyper-nationalism, so not just nationalism, but nationalism times 10 or 100. Rebirth, which of course implies decline. You need to have serial decline, terminal decline in order to talk about rebirth and populism. Now, populism gets, gets me into a number of other things. Just to give you an idea of how I use the term here, the sort of distillation of everything into an either or opposition. What we call the Manichaean battle between good and evil. That is a, a populism in that context. Now, fascist ideology, we talked about very generic things. There is that little detail that's called interwar fascism. And I put that title at the top you know, fascism is context specific. And in many ways we should let interwar fascism remain interwar. To remain interwar in the sense that it was context specific and context reliant. What you were saying, Ella, at the very beginning. So the, the threat of the left um, 
the perceived threat of the left, the Bolshevik revolution, very recent, the idea, the paranoia that the world is about to succumb to a worldwide revolution. The crisis of parliamentarism, which was really terminal in the 1920s and 30s. There weren't many people who would, there weren't many people who would uh, stand up to defend parliamentarism in 1920s and 30s. Um, economic and crisis, political instability, and of course, not to mention the scars of the First World War, the psychological traumas, the cultural traumas. That's sort of, I keep saying that somebody has to write a book about 1919, not because of the pandemic um, back then, but because it's the year where a lot of people come out of the war and some of them say, let's change the world one way or another. And, uh, and some other, a lot of other people saying, what is going on? I don't recognize this word. I don't want to be this word. And it's, it's this kind of thing. So fascism is context specific in that respect. We cannot discount this, but Going back to what I was saying about the essence of fascism, if we think that, as I do in that case, that fascism is a thin sentence ideology, that not an original ideology, but an original synthesis of things that are out there, then I see fascism's real originality in terms of its being a catalyst for change and radicalization, an amplifier of what is already there, so not just nationalism, but hyper-nationalism, not just acceptance of violence, but glorification of violence, not just xenophobia and fear of the other, but hatred of the other and exclusion of the other. And I think fascism is the arch taboo breaker. So the real innovation of fascism is not as innovation of ideas, but it's innovation in terms of putting things together and by putting them together, alchemizing something really powerful that explodes into an energy that finds traction amongst disoriented, fearful, um, frustrated, alienated masses in the 1920s and 1930s. Let us talk briefly about this kind of period that starts in 1922. I don't think we cannot, we, we can talk about the start of fascism without this kind of turning point, 1922. Now, why am I coming back to this 1922? Because I said it's the first proof that this radical startup can actually be quite successful. That is the starting point from a, for a international journey of fascist ideas. So what's happening in Italy inspires others. There's no doubt about this. Whether we can call all these other variants or varieties or whatever we decide to call them fascism or not is another discussion. Some of them did call themselves fascists. Um, I'm always amused by the fact that there was a, um, one of the first organizations was created in the United Kingdom and they were called, you probably know them already, British Fascisti, which I think is is quite telling of the imitation, but also the fact that I am owning this as a British thing. Uh, so fascism travels, okay, um, different ideas. So when Mussolini is appointed prime minister in 1922, Hitler says, we're gonna do the same, news travel to Berlin. By that time, Hitler is, 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 is a leader, but he's nobody. Um, but the press starts calling him Bavarian Mussolini in Germany. Then you have the um, this gentleman, one of the most interesting, for all the wrong reasons, but anyway, uh, leaders of uh, fascism in Romania, 
Cornelius Zelia Codreanu, leader of the Romanian Iron Guard, Iron Guard at that time um, a student. And he said, he wrote afterwards that that was an apocalyptic moment. It was almost like a calling for him. And then we have this different, this, this completely different person here. I don't know whether you can see my cursor, but he's on the left of that third image. And that is General Miguel Primo de Rivera. He's a Spanish general who seizes power in 1923. And he calls himself a dedicated Mussolinianist. Not only that, but he becomes the first political leader to visit Rome and visit Mussolini as a head of state. And um, he is really differential. Now, here's an interesting thing. He, uh, Primo de Rivera is not some kind of young revolutionary, okay? He's an old traditionalist, very Catholic, very conservative, very militaristic, very royalist, but he sees something in Mussolini that really inspires him and wants to be aligned. So clearly fascism travels in ways that even the fascists themselves hadn't intended in 1922 and later on. Um, okay, and of course it travels, we talked about Hitler, um, it travels and it travels much further. But in 1933, we have that second big moment, Hitler becoming um, chancellor. And of course, the problem here is that um, um, clearly there is political inspiration. Initially from Rome to Berlin, clearly there is political collaboration and eventual alliance between the two, although the relationship was not always very good, as you will probably know. Clearly, there is ideological proximity, but there are also fundamental differences. And of course, this is what the illustration is here. I'm not going to play the video, don't worry. Um, the big illustration here is about, uh, the, 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 the big problem is about antisemitism and the importance of race in national socialism, which is not replicated in Italian fascism up until 1936 to 38, when even Italian fascism flips. But... That doesn't mean that Italian fascism, or indeed any other kind of fascism, depending on how you, you describe it, is not racist. And I think racism is a fundamental uh, conception at the heart of fascism, and it's part of that either-or image of the world that we were talking about. So um, sometimes it's not the Jews, sometimes it is the Jews, sometimes it's the Jews and other groups, sometimes it's not the Jews at all, but let us not forget how violent Italian fascism was in the colonies absolutely genocidal and brutal. Let us not forget that Croatian fascism was um, absolutely anti-Serb, violently, viscerally anti-Serb and so on and so forth. So, and then as fascism travels in different countries, it goes global. So forget about Mussolini and Hitler who were anti-clerical at the beginning. When you, I just talked about Croatia. When you talk about Croatia or you talk about Slova Slovakia, countries where nationalism was intrinsically linked to religion, fascism becomes religious in that respect. I don't want to push that metaphor too far, but what, what I'm saying is while Catholicism is not as important to uh, fascism in Italy or um, Christianity to fascism in Germany, uh, it is very important to fascism in Slovakia. It is very important to fascism in Belgium or in Croatia or in Romania. It's not Catholicism there is is Orthodox, um, Eastern Orthodox religion, and so on and so forth. It is 
in my uh, um, home country, religion is important to Greek fascism because it's so important as part of the national identity. So when fascism goes local, it changes. I just wanted to share this quote with you. This is General Ion Antonescu in Romania. Look what he's saying. He's not a fascist himself, but he becomes, as it were, uh, aligned. He says, this state, Romania, shall base its policy on the primacy of Romanianism, so nationalism first. I pledge to unhesitatingly enforce all reforms necessary for the elimination of foreign influences, Jews, and so on and so forth. The struggle of the grand German National Socialist Revolution and fascist, meaning Italy, achievements shall serve as guideposts of experience to be adapted into Romanian needs in order to graft on new realities. So this is, to me, this is a fascinating uh, uh, um, quote because it actually shows you that people are not out there copying what is happening in Italy and Germany. They're active agents, they're active translators, and they're selective translators. They'll take what they like, they'll, take, they'll, they'll reject what they don't like, and they're going to make it um, their own. The final question is what happens in 1945. Let us not forget that our whole post-war consensus is based on that cozy liberal idea. I put Jürgen Habermas here, who is clearly one of those people. Uh, fascism, defeat of fascism, bury fascism, and that kind of idea of never again, which was used primarily with regard to the Holocaust and so on and so forth. So when um, we're talking about fascism, usually we talk about neo-fascism, which is this kind of groups that clearly imitate, they say, they dress the same way, blah, 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 blah. But there has been a revival of the term fascism. Um, the use of the term, the abuse of the term, the overuse of the term as uh, synonymous to dictatorship, as synonymous to authoritarianism, as synonymous to nationalism, as synonymous to a number of different things. And I think this is telling of the lasting power of that historical episode. But to talk about 1945 as the year zero fascism, I think was not only premature, what was irresponsible in so many ways, because it basically confined fascism to a particular historical context and fascism is is part of something uh, much bigger in many ways. I'm going to skip this idea of eternal fascism. Sorry, I kind of misjudged the timing. But um, I wanted to refer to Umberto Eco and his book on Ur fascism. But um, I'm very glad to talk briefly in the discussion uh, about this because Eco makes the point that fascism is an eternal force and it takes particular kinds of shapes in different historical periods but it outlives all shapes and all historical periods. So with one minute to go, here's my five statements. Relic or specter, I would say both. Interwar fascism is a relic, is a context-specific, historically conditioned, specific um, articulation of something, however, that predated it and something that may transmute into something else, another kind of synthesis, later on. Echo in that same book says that do not expect, and this is one of his most famous quotes, do not expect fascism to resurface in Auschwitz or through a camp 
against the Jews and so on and so forth. In that respect, I think fascism is very much the specter, or I should say fascism is part of a force in history that is uh, the specter. I don't think it's coming back and I don't think it's history repeating. I think these are the wrong questions, as I said, and I'm being a bit provocative here so that we can have discussion about it. I don't think history is going to repeat itself, but that's not necessarily good news, I'm afraid, because the components that made fascism remain widespread, they remain banal in society. Nationalism is around, racism is around, xenophobia is around, fear of the other is around, either or simplicity is around, uh, um, and all these things can be resynthesized, as we have seen, actually, not that long ago. Whether something is fascist is a wrong question, but I think the most important thing about fascism is that the forces that were resynthesized into what we call interwar fascism can actually be resynthesized, or some of them can be resynthesized and take shape and find appeal among ma mainstream society in the future, or this is something that is maybe happening now. So my, my warning would be, we should not expect a revival of fascism, but we can very, very easily expect and always prepare for uh, a devastating and dangerous revival of some or many of the forces that drove the exclusive and violent and devastating ideology of interwar fascism. <laughs>